If we're going to create equitable progress throughout Asia, then we need to make sure that everybody's got access to that technology. The demographics in Asia are astonishing. Since COVID began, so 2019, in the last two years, we've seen about 270 million people come online for the first time. So a whole new Indonesia, which is really quite remarkable. What we want to do is make sure that they've got access to that technology, that they know how to use it, and that the products and services that they can leverage are meaningful to them. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast that dissects the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung. Asia is the home of the two-thirds of the world's population, China, India, and Indonesia. The challenge is to get connected to the internet. And today, I have Scott Beaumont, President, Asia-Pacific from Google, to tell us how to bring the next 2.5 billion online. Welcome, Scott, to the podcast. Thanks, Bernard. It's good to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you for agreeing to come on the show. We're going to have a very interesting conversation on how to get the next 2.5 billion population online and discuss your insights on technology trends across the Asia-Pacific market. Of course, being first time on the show, I would like to get to know you better. How did you start your career? It was a long time ago. In fact, I started right at the very advent of the consumer internet when we were still trying to work out what it could be used for and why it was going to be useful. At that time as well, the, the beginning of uh, mobile telephony. So in Europe at that time where I was, we were just beginning to see the first mobile telephone companies emerge out of these uh, government entities. You had this kind of melting pot of the internet with its question marks and what it might be useful with the mobile phone. Depending on your point of view, you weren't quite sure whether it was going to be a thing or not. I was always pretty convinced. I wasn't the only one, of course. It was an exciting time. You could begin to see the possibilities about how technology was going to be part of our everyday lives and the types of things that we might be able to do with it. It was a fascinating time then, and it continues to be so now. Even from the European point of view, mobile was very advanced in the early days, thinking about mobile plans, connecting people to the internet. What eventually brought you to Asia Pacific? and eventually come to joining Google in your present role? That's a good question. It was a mixture of different things, actually. I had studied and lived abroad when I was younger. I traveled the world with my wife, who was then my girlfriend. My brother-in-law lived and worked for a period with his family in Hong Kong. We always wanted for our family an opportunity to live and work abroad and be exposed to different cultures and different languages. To be honest, I was quite open to where that would be. It was good luck that brought me to Asia. It could have taken me anywhere, but I'm certainly very grateful that it brought me here. An incredible region, incredibly youthful, vibrant, enthusiastic, and very tech forward. It's been a privilege actually over the last decade to be here. Eventually, how did you end up joining Google? Do you came to the region with Google first? Or? Yeah, I worked, I lived and worked with Google for nearly five years out of our London office. I used to run some of our partnership activities there. That was good fun. Then an opportunity came to move across to Asia and lead our sales and operations in greater China and Korea, which I did. And I took on this role probably close to three years ago. Yeah, it's been three years running the APAC business. And as I say, it's just wherever you look around Asia, there's plenty of opportunity. Yes. And you have covered really the most interesting regions, China, Korea. And if today a young person would have walked to you and ask you from your career journey, what would be the key lessons you want to share with my audience? I would say, first and foremost, work or study hard so that you've got the choice to do something that you enjoy, that you find fulfilling, that you're passionate about. You want to ideally enjoy it. If you're working on something that you enjoy, you're going to go to work with an extra spring in your step. 
you're probably going to achieve more and, and be more fun to be around as well. That's definitely one thing. I say this to my team here in region and depending on the culture, sometimes it leads to an animated discussion, but I try and encourage people not to be afraid of failure. If you wait for things to be perfect, particularly in technology, if the world moves fast and things are likely to pass you by, don't push yourself or you don't find your boundaries. You're never quite sure whether you or the idea you have has reached its full potential. So by all means, don't make silly mistakes and don't make the same mistakes twice. If you can help it, don't be afraid to throw yourself out there and step a little bit outside your comfort zone because you're going to learn a lot more. Then I'd encourage people to surround themselves with a diverse group of people. If, if you can surround yourself with different ideas and different perspectives and people from different backgrounds who ideally are smarter than you are, you're going to come up with lots of creative ideas, lots of new opportunities, lots of ways of approaching a problem that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. Certainly if you create a room, which is just full of people and minds who are thinking about things in the same way that you are you're probably going to stagnate over time. For me, part of my job and part of the thing I enjoy is I've got this wonderful group of people that I've worked with day in, day out from all around the region. I'm absolutely guaranteed on any given day, on any given problem or opportunity that I'm going to get five, six, seven great ideas or themes in terms of how to approach something. We can work with that and work out what the right one or two are from the, the different ideas that are forming around the room. The main subject of the day today is uh, getting the next 2.5 billion online. Obviously, that's a very big number. And it started off uh, an inspiration from your piece in the Nikkei Asia Review, which I read every week. And that's how we have came to having this conversation. I want to start off is to ask the why. Why is it important to bring the next 2.5 billion online specifically for the Asia Pacific market? Uh, a lot of that's to do with demographics, but basically what we want to do is make sure that everybody can benefit from technology. We definitely see that those that do have access to technology are afforded opportunity that those that don't miss out on. If we're going to create equitable progress throughout Asia, then we need to make sure that everybody's got access to that technology. The demographics in Asia are astonishing. Just over since COVID began, so 2019. Just in the last two years, we've seen about 270 million people come online for the first time. So a whole new Indonesia, which is really quite remarkable. What we want to do is make sure that they've got access to that technology, that they know how to use it and that the products and services that they can leverage are, are meaningful to them. That can be even just thinking about COVID. If I'm coming online, why it's certainly useful to me if I can find out, you know, up-to-date information from my ministry of health in terms of what the situation is. If I can find out where the clinics are that I can go to get my face masks. If I can be introduced to a way, if I can't move around, I can be introduced to a way that I can get my groceries delivered to me uh, online without stepping outside. Even from a, a very practical point of view in terms of how we've experienced life over the last couple of years, having access to information, having access to these services is life-changing. We want the ability to make sure that everybody uh, has that opportunity. The simple demographics of Asia are that there are simply more people coming online at a pace here than anywhere else across the world. What are the drivers that allow us to bring the next 2.5 billion online? I understand that Google has a couple of major initiatives focusing on India and Indonesia in the last decade. Can you elaborate more on those drivers that are driving this growth to bring people online there? Yeah, probably three things are going to be key. The infrastructure needs to be in place. Two, the products and services that are being used need to be useful. It's not something that 
anyone could do alone. So you need uh, a key group of partnerships to actually bring these things to life. So in terms of infrastructure, that's maybe as simple, but as large as investing in submarine cables to connect different points of presence across the world. It may be the work that we do in our data centers in region to make sure that our products and services are operating efficiently. When we're thinking about products and services, it might literally be making sure that we can put a low cost smartphone in somebody's hand. And a recent project together with Geo in India is looking exactly that. How can we create a smartphone at $50 and just make that more available to the hundreds of millions of people in India that are still to get online? How can we create services based on the languages or allow people who aren't literate to engage using their voice to engage with them. So you're making sure that those products and services are accessible is pretty key. Actually a mixture of private and public partnerships to oftentimes ensure that school children know how to use the internet responsibly to enable developers or small businesses to understand the tools that are available to them and enable them to bring them to life. That's something that we're very uh, passionate about. In, in fact, over the last five years, we've trained over 50 million small and medium-sized businesses across the region. It's a large region, but that's uh, a pretty meaningful start. And what we find is in these communities, you know, once you've trained one business or one entrepreneur, that has a knock-on effect and word of mouth then breathes life into these programs and actually enables a great many more entrepreneurs and small businesses to thrive. You have mentioned earlier that being online is so important to get the right information during this challenging period of the COVID-19 pandemic. I want to pick your brain. How has COVID-19 pandemic accelerated the movement to bring people online? Yeah, it's actually, it's been a major step change. We can see that both at consumer level and also at a corporate level. There's a McKinsey study now, which is observing that for most large companies, COVID has taken forward their digitization development by a decade, which is really quite remarkable. Even when you look at consumers, we're finding that there are a large number of consumers, particularly older consumers that previously had not been online. So they're coming online for the first time and beginning to use services they've not used before. And I think that's going to stick. Um, so surveys that, that we've undertaken suggest that nine out of 10 people that have engaged in uh, a new digital product or service during COVID are going to retain that usage afterwards, go back to those core information needs and those core day-to-day -day utility needs. That's why consumers have lent in to digitization during the COVID period. And for corporates, it's been a whole world of different challenges. How do I keep my operations running when people aren't in the office or I have limited access to our manufacturing facility? How can I set myself up better for the future so my business is more resilient to these types of shocks or different shocks which have emphasized the need to be more flexible and to be more cost-effective? What people have also seen is as other people, as competitors have moved into this space and taken advantage of the budget benefits of digitization, they can no longer sit on the fence and they're also drawn in to making those investments and making sure that they're taking advantage of the benefits that digitization affords. But actually their resilience has been surprisingly strong. Perhaps we would be able to identify individual cases where that's not the case. And certainly if you're in the tourism industry across much of the region, that would be an exception too. But generally, you know, you find incredible individuals 
who are quite tenacious and fundamentally need to find a way. I'd met one lady in Indonesia who used to cater for the local in her village. The school shut down and all of a sudden she had no income, but actually she knew somebody who'd taken uh, a digital course with Google. She took that course and then basically was able to use a tool called Google My Business on Google Maps to actually build out new custom across her islands and to the neighboring islands too. All of a sudden her business is now larger than it was before with greater reach. And she's now talking about that to others and, and others are beginning to take the same path. So on some hand, I think one of the things that we can take out of this period is people are incredibly resilient. I think we've all proven that at an individual level, small businesses in particular have proven that in a business context too. So that's one thing. I think the other thing that I think I would take away from it is we can manage the tools exist for us to be able to communicate and run businesses while being remote. But it's also created an interesting paradox where you can talk to a great many more people than you could before. So when we're running events, for example, we find that we're not limited to the 300 people we can fit in the room. In fact, we're not limited at all. We're only limited by the bandwidth, which is available. So the way that we design and think about events you know, may change even after we get past this initial stage. The way that we communicate across teams will change too. But on the flip side, I think that we're coming out of this also appreciating that there is a value of face-to-face -face interaction that perhaps we took it for granted. Certainly when we're thinking about how we innovate, how we create breakthrough innovations rather than iterations, I still think that there is a value and a connection and a chemistry which is created by being face-to-face -face that we've never really managed to bridge during COVID. So I think our lessons from this period are, it's going to be a mixed bag. We're going to take some things from this experience and think that was interesting. That broke a habit that we had before and that habit deserves to be broken. Then I think there'll be other habits that we'll be happy to fall back into, hopefully with a greater appreciation perhaps than, than we had in the past. Google has been front and center in the initiative of bringing people online. And I think part of the efforts ushering the population towards economic prosperity for example, the Next Billion Initiative that I've also documented years back. Can you talk about how Google has contributed with the different services you have, for example, Android, Google Pay, Google Play Store, your digital ads that's been used by many small and medium businesses across Asia Pacific? Yeah, so that's a, a nice question. But the truth is Google only succeeds when people use its platforms and products and they won't use those platforms and products unless they're succeeding too. Generally, what Google sought to do, you mentioned Android, Android's a great example, things like TensorFlow is a great example, where these are open libraries, which anybody can use. One of the fascinating things uh, about digital technology is it really, for this conversation, for example, it doesn't matter where we are in the world, we're able to communicate. And when we think about the way that people find new customers, they're not limited actually to find them you know, within their village, they're not, don't need to be within walking distance. They literally can be the other side of the world. And a lot of the tools and the platforms that we have enable that connection to take place and enable that opportunity to be identified. And so whether it's Google pay or whether it's Android or whether it's Google ads or, you know, whether it's Google cloud, there are a lot of opportunities which open up to either single developers and entrepreneurs, small and medium sized businesses or larger businesses. Yeah, it's. 
you know, it's a, it's a fascinating space. And we, within that world, you create a cycle where basically people feed on the innovation of others and feed off uh, the ideas of others. And so when we launched a payment in India, you know, we did that also on the basis of a, a platform and a strategy that the Indian government wanted to enable that would foster both inclusion for everybody in India, but also innovation across India. That product enabled a degree of innovation in terms of how people charge customers that wasn't previously available. And that started a whole new vein of innovation and new services that could be brought to customers that, that weren't available before. It, so it's, it's an incredibly rewarding place to be because you, you've seeded these products, these platforms into the market. The opportunity creation, the job creation that comes off the back of that really is quite extraordinary. I have to say that being a Google customer to run the podcast as a small business for myself, the tools have been actually pretty useful in terms of organizing my podcast workflow, for example, from getting guests to calendar invites and getting Google Docs to write the show notes as such. While we are at the cups of enabling people online, given the geopolitical factors, for example, the evolving relationship between US and China and misinformation spreading specific to the COVID-19 pandemic, one question I do have is what would be the best ways that we can help people out there to be able to gain access to the right information rather than being inundated with too much information that sometimes may harm them as well? Yeah, this was a problem that we faced in the early stages of COVID. It's a problem that you can only solve in partnership. It's something you need to work on over time and it's never really done. One of the things that we did very early on during COVID was we partnered with governments around the world to say, what do you see to be the authoritative source of information? We ended up working with a lot of ministries of health or equivalent bodies across the world and ensuring any relevant search within YouTube or Google search or Google Maps surfaced information from that source. There may be other information available, but at least upfront, you were going to see something that you could see, you could look at, you could recognize and you could trust. That's one element of it. That's a question of having the right conversations, building the right partnerships and doing that clearly in the midst of COVID. There's also a lot of poor information circling. We look at our, our product policies to see whether it's something that can be disqualified. If it can, then good. If it can't, then why not? We investigate that. We talk broadly and with third parties to try and understand whether our point of view is right. The other thing that we try to make sure that we lean into is we have the ability to push down content that we don't think is particularly reliable. Ensure that content is not rewarded by not labeling any advertising or monetization on it, for example. And again, allowing the trusted sources to bubble up to make sure that the information which is circling is as reliable as possible. The good news is still today, misinformation is still a terrifying small percentage of all available content. The bad news is it's very difficult to eradicate it completely. It's constant work in progress to make sure that you can do, because clearly if you've got a motivation that you want this information to circulate, this misinformation to circulate, you're always, you're always trying to beat the system, whether it's manually or through, through our machine learning or through product or policy work, the work's always ongoing to try and make sure that the ecosystem is, and the information which is available is clean. One question I do have and thinking through about the access to information, I'm also thinking about innovation as well. So mm -hmm. if we rewind. 20 years back before this new decade, 
the technology is often started from the US and then exported to the rest of the world. Given the progress of technology today, for example, how China cracked digital payments with WeChat Pay and Alipay, Japan innovating with consoles from Wii to Switch, South Korea and Taiwan doing a lot of continuous innovation with semiconductors, which is now very crucial because there's a big chip shortage in manufacturing. Do you think that a global company today will be able to initiate and develop products from the Asia Pacific and then export it back to the rest of the world? And that includes US as well. Yeah, so we'll see. But let me just take you back. When I started, the US wasn't the source of innovation. In fact, when I joined my first mobile data startup, we looked to SK Telecom in Korea and they had this thing called ringback tones, which uh, we were fascinated by. We looked at iMode in Japan as being the first and the best idea of what a mobile service should look like. It's not always been, and in fact, I set up my own mobile software business in Europe because at that time, and it was fairly short-lived, but at that time, mobile technology and mobile device penetration was much higher in Europe than it was in the US. So it's relatively recent that we've seen this incredible success of Silicon Valley in this space. But going forward, I think the value will continue to be a, a great innovation presence. But I think you're right. I think what we're going to see in Asia is going to be tremendous. I say that for a number of different reasons. One is the quality of entrepreneurs in APAC, the penetration of computer science and the amount of computer science graduates is very high. The finance infrastructure is in place now. So if you want venture capital in Asia, it's never easy, but the opportunity is there. A lot of these domestic markets are at scale. So if I was to have my time again with my own startup, I'd probably relocate Silicon Valley, not just because of the benefit of the Valley, but because the US market was much bigger than the UK. Similarly, if you're in India, you've got enough on your plate to serve India before you even think about going abroad. As you mentioned earlier on, there's China, there's Indonesia, there's Pakistan, there's Vietnam. These are all enormous markets, even before we think about talking about Japan. So I think that the entrepreneurial class in APAC has a golden opportunity, which I'm sure they're going to take. You mentioned Android. When I think back to when I ran my own mobile software business, I was developing for Symbian, two different variants, and Java for every other phone. And oh my word, that could end up in massive fragmentation. The idea that there's essentially Android and iOS, and that's as complicated as life gets, and I get global reach really is quite phenomenal. There's been no better time really to be an entrepreneur in Asia. I think you can grow a very decent business in Asia for Asia alone, and it'd be incredibly valuable. And of course, we're seeing that already. But why wouldn't some of these companies also find a way to establish, if they are serving the user in a way which makes sense, then why wouldn't it establish them? Some of our best innovations, our own, Google's own best innovations in were in APAC have gone elsewhere. We developed a opportunity to download YouTube videos offline in India, simply because network connectivity at the time wasn't particularly stable, but it turned out that was a valuable feature that we also introduced in the US. If you develop to a user need and that user need is universal, there's no reason at all why we won't see even more successful and even more large companies in Asia than we've seen today. On the topic of startups, given that you have experience being a startup founder, what would be your advice to startups out here who want to build from Asia Pacific and leverage the market here for the next 2.5 billion? 
And it all starts with the user. You've got a lot of wind in your sail. All of the things I just mentioned, right? From the financing, the resources to the community, which is here. So then it's all on you. Can you find the right opportunity? Can you find the right idea? To a certain extent, as a startup entrepreneur, you need to be a little bit deluded. At the point you have your idea is you versus the world, and it's up to you to make it come to life. You're never quite sure whether you're right or wrong. But if you can put your finger on something that a community of users really needs, you're going to know pretty quickly whether you're onto something or not. And what I found, this is true of a lot of places in the region, people are very quick to experiment. If you come up with something, people will try it. Whether they stay with you or not is another matter, but people will try it. So you'll know pretty quickly whether you're onto something or not, but you just need to move very quickly. Other than just moving fast and making sure that the products that people want, do you have any additional thoughts to how startups can build on top of partnerships, maybe something with Google, maybe even with other tech companies or leverage to build out their ecosystem? I would say when it comes to working with Google and other large tech companies, I, I would look to leverage the the, the tools and the APIs that are available. If, if, if in the early stages, I, I probably have colleagues that won't thank me for this, but if you're in the early stages, if you get embroiled in complicated partnership discussions with a much larger company, whoever that company is, you, it is going to slow you down. If it is critical to your proposition, then of course you need to do that. Otherwise, there is a lot that you can do with these companies. Means you don't need to talk to the product and engineering or business development teams on an ongoing basis. But you mentioned that you were you used a lot of Google tools in you know, the seven number of your podcast. Fantastic! Those are free tools. Those are tools that you know you read the licensing agreement and away you go. So good on you. I think if you can avail yourself, and a lot of these things are public. TensorFlow is initially started as an internal tool within Google as Google tried to teach itself how to leverage the power and capability of machine learning and AI. Now that's now in the public domain. So you don't need a conversation with Google there. You just need to go and be fed by your own curiosity and your own enthusiasm and commitment and just uncover these tools which are available for you to use. So if you can do that and create the connection for free with the tools that these companies are, are throwing out and allowing you to use and grow, do that. As soon as you get in, embroiled in a more detailed partnership discussion, that might be needed at some time, but in the very, very early stages, it's likely to get in your way. I want to pick your brain on technologies. Technologies are constantly evolving. We've seen the DeepMind AI. I actually enjoyed yeah. the AlphaGo documentary. Yes. And the rise of cryptocurrencies and blockchain projects are now what people call Web3. And even quantum computing, which I understood that Google has recently achieved quantum supremacy being the first to perform a calculation that is practically impossible for a classical machine. I'm very excited because myself being a theoretical physicist in my past life. What are your thoughts on how these technologies will come into play and or do they have the potential to disrupt the technology industry of today and what would it look like? What it would look like, I think mm. that'd be something that we can come back and discuss over the years as it takes shape. Will it lead to disruption? Yes, I think so. Bernadette, you all know that there's Mary Mika. And for many years, she ran every year, almost like a Bible of the evolution of the internet. There was one slide that she went back to year after year that basically looked at different waves of computing and who were the successful companies in those waves of computing. It was very unusual for companies to be able to manage a transition from one computing wave to another because it's very difficult to be in the midst of being successful in one wave and see 
what the impact of a subsequent wave is going to be. So will there be disruption? Absolutely. What is the full potential of AI? What is the full potential of quantum computing? We can see some of the potential today, right? If you've ever used Google Translate, the last great breakthrough in translate capability was powered by a lot of machine learning. And if you use Google search today or Google maps, and you ask what's the quickest route between A and B, we'll do that leveraging some AI capabilities. I would say these are all early use cases of more profound impacts that are going to come further down the line. We need to make sure as an industry that we're both able to take advantage of the benefits that will provide, that we're able to manage through the disruption that it will create and protect ourselves from bad actors or people that use these capabilities in a way which isn't appropriate. But AI generally at the moment, I think we've got the first stepping stones and we've got uh, key principles in place that we're building industry alliances around making sure that we adhere to, to in order to ensure that, you know, we are able to benefit from its potential as far as we can see it. Quantum's fascinating. I've actually had the privilege of visiting our quantum computing lab in California. The enthusiasm from the team there is infectious. Even if I didn't understand everything that they said, I wonder what they're been able to achieve so far, what we might be able to do with that. I think perhaps it's going to be another six, eight, 10 years before we begin to understand the potential that may have for us going forward. But I know the team's excited um, and I know that, or I feel very strongly that it is something that we should lean into and explore again, over time, we need to make sure that if these discoveries that are used in a productive way the opportunity to solve things like the climate change challenge, for example, these things become possible. They become easier if we're able to use the full value of the technology that we can uncover. And so disruption, yes, but we should embrace that and we should find ways to make sure that we can you know, manage it sensibly. How about blockchain and cryptocurrencies? Where are you on that? I am still very much in my learning period. So I am listening to as many podcasts and reading as many books as I can, trying to get my head around how that's evolving, where it's going next. I find it a fascinating space, but I wouldn't consider myself an expert, but I'm definitely open to recommendations, man. We will definitely get you back to talk about that when that becomes a very interesting conversation at some point. Scott, many thanks for coming on the show. In closing, we will ask two more questions. The first sure. one is. Can you recommend any books, podcasts, movies, or something that have, which have inspired you recently? So books, uh, a good friend, a former colleague of mine has just published a book called nothing is impossible. It's about America's reconciliation with Vietnam. I know a little bit about the story from speaking to him and I love the sentiment. Nothing is impossible. I think those are words to live by. Yeah. The part of the stories in the book is written by a former U.S. ambassador to Vietnam who could have just sat in his office all day and enjoyed the trappings of his office, but actually instead got on a bicycle and cycled around rural Vietnam, speaking to the people, learning the language, learning what life was like there. I think getting under the cover of the region that you represent and speaking to as many people you can and understanding the history and understanding the culture is something that I've really enjoyed and a, and a really good habit, I think, for others to look at. So that would be one. One of my favorite authors is writing things like The Big Short, Blindside, Moneyball, and these types of things. 
he wrote, he always finds a way of uncovering the underdog. And he's written a book recently called The Premonition. He actually follows the lives of a few folks in the US who early on during COVID knew exactly what was going to happen and knew exactly what they needed to do. It talks about their challenge about being heard. I found that fascinating and finding a voice and helping enable diverse voices and unheard voices is uh, something I'm passionate about. So I quite enjoyed that read as well. That's a very good recommendation. I'm going to check out Nothing Is Impossible. How do my audience find you? You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, so if you want to reach out on LinkedIn, you can find me there. Scott Beaumont, I'm the only one, I think, working for Google. So it should be relatively easy. You can find us on any podcast platform from Spotify, Apple Podcasts, even to Google Play. Or you can also tweet to us your feedback at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E-A-S-I-A. Or you could even drop us feedback through our news site and subscribe to our newsletters from here on. Uh, Scott, many thanks for coming on the show to talk about how to get the next 2.5 billion online. I look forward to speak to you again sometime soon in the future. Yeah, thanks, Brandon. I really enjoyed it. Good speaking to you.